0: help clients achieve their vision through a deep understanding of what is important to them that requires planning, money, and time. Learn more and subscribe today at markets-work.com. Welcome back to the Free Lunch Podcast with Greg
1: and Colin. That was exciting, wasn't it? The that, way was. I said that Well yeah. done. Greg, let's face it. We're getting a lot of calls from investors these days. I don't know about you, but I've had quite a number. And the number one question that we get, any idea what that might be? Yes, I have a very good idea. What's that? Is there something we should be doing differently
2: because of what's going on in the markets?
1: It is the number one question that we're getting, and we're going to get into that. And we're going to answer that today, Greg. I hope to. Because the markets are complex things, complex beings. They're complex areas of trade that I don't think most people actually understand. And I don't mean that in a way to slight anybody. It's just that the nature of markets is that they are big, powerful beasts we could spend a great deal of time today talking about some of the intricacies of that. Things like alpha, beta, standard deviation, variance, et cetera. We could look at various pricing ratios that we've talked about in past episodes, Greg. Price earnings, price to sales, price to book, et cetera. We could spend time going through active versus passive. That's an argument that has come up our whole careers. We could talk about quant versus fundamental analysis versus throwing darts at a board. Do you have a dartboard at your house, Greg? Not anymore. No, we have one. Do you? Yeah. use it a lot? No, no, we don't. But the teenagers do. And so the wall looks like crap. No, But we could do all of that. And we've done all of those things in previous episodes. We actually had a mini series a few months back where we looked at things like pretty complex stuff, like capital asset pricing model and expected return. We looked at factors of return, stock picking, market timing, the benefits of asset allocation and diversification, et cetera. So I would recommend that anyone that's interested in looking under the hood, so to speak, Go back and review those episodes because I think there was some good information in them. Sure. Now, I'm slightly biased, of course, Greg. You should be. I am. (laughs) To me, this is the number one investing podcast in Canada, and that's my own bias. I couldn't agree more. (laughs) But today, we're focused on answering that question, that question of like, should we be doing something different now because of the market being down, whether it be the stock market, the bond market, whatever. Now, maybe the housing market with the rise in interest rates. So we're going to look at The Kiss Principle. Now, you're familiar with The Kiss Principle. That's right. I think The Kiss Principle is a band. Are they an American (laughs) band? Well, let's see. They are an American band. This is one of their top songs from back in, I don't know, late 80s? Early 80s? No, late 70s. Okay, I remember that. Anyways, we'll come back to that. But The Kiss Principle we're referring to is Keep It Simple, Stupid. So this principle was first developed by the U.S. Navy in 1960. I didn't know that. It was an acronym that was coined by a guy named Kelly Johnson, lead engineer at the Lockheed Skunk Works. That's quite the title, eh? Hey? Skunk Works. Yeah, creators of spy planes and other things, war-like related. But well, popular usage over the years has transcribed it for decades as keep it simple, comma, stupid, Mr. Johnson transcribed it as keep it simple, stupid, no comma. I don't know what the big difference is, but that's just semantics, I suppose. Well, it
2: it might mean that you're not calling the person that you're talking to stupid.
1: You're saying, keep it simple, stupid. Okay, that makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah, because we're definitely not using this framework to suggest that anybody is other than intelligent. But the principle is best exemplified. Actually, I won't even say it. It's just exemplified everywhere. Like when we talk about investing, like there's so many things that you can do to make it more complex for yourself. And we would subscribe to the idea of, why would you do that? keep it simple. You can find this KISS principle in full effect in things like film animation, software development, politics, finance, of course. And for today's discussion, we're obviously going to focus on investing. Right on. And before you get started, Greg, I've got a little song for you. This is a KISS tribute episode. Love it. Of course you love it. The song was, I was made for loving you. I hope you don't mean that personally. (laughs) No. Okay. That's enough of that. All right. You want to take us through it? Well, sure. Let's
2: dive in. So we're talking about keeping investing simple. And I want to throw out a big shout out to Ben Carlson, who we've interviewed on this podcast.
1: Yes. Former guest on the free lunch podcast.
2: Ben Carlson has a blog and he actually addressed some of the issues we're talking about today. Years ago, I think that blog was originally from 2013. So nine years old. Everything that he talked about is absolutely still relevant today. And we're going to go through and talk about some of these things. And one of the things, before we even dive in, I just want to make the point that a lot of the things we're going to be talking about deal with investment processes, like keeping it simple in terms of the investment process, addressing questions like, is now a good time to invest? Is now a good time to pull money out of the market? That kind of thing. But there's a lot of complexity that also comes into this business from the product standpoint, And we've talked about product selections and we talked a lot about, in fact, lately, as we've talked about the death of the 60-40 portfolio or the annual death of the 60-40 portfolio or the death of bonds as a valid investment option, a lot of the alternatives that are being presented to those kinds of investments are extremely complex. And I just wanted to touch on a couple because these are things that investors might run across and not know what the heck they are, and with good reason, because they're very complex. So So these these, are structured products. So these are structured products. And so everybody, or most people are probably familiar with ETFs or exchange traded funds that just give you exposure to typically a benchmark of some kind like the S&P 500 index or the TSX 60 composite index, something like that. And so you can buy an ETF, which is just a low cost alternative to give you exposure to the broad market. But of course, somebody devised the inverse ETF. The inverse ETF uses derivatives, and essentially what you do is you try to profit from a decline of an underlying benchmark. So a regular S&P 500 ETF would capture the upside of the U.S. market as it goes up. An inverse ETF would actually benefit from the market going down.
1: But this is just a form of
2: market timing then? It is. It's making a bet that, oh, I think the markets are too high. I think they're going to go down. So let's buy an inverse ETF. And it's kind of like we talked once before about selling a stock short, selling a stock that you don't own because you think it's going to go down in value, and then buying it back later when it's a lower price than you sold it at. So you bought low, sold high. So these are just kind of an alternative to selling short and without possibly some of the complications of selling short. But Again, you're making a bet on a direction of the market, and in the case of inverse ETFs, you're paying higher fees. Now, if you want inverse ETFs on steroids, you can buy a leveraged inverse ETF, and basically what happens is they're like inverse ETFs, but they're designed to go up in multiples of the decline of the underlying benchmark. If you have an inverse ETF on the NASDAQ 100, for example, on the technology sector, if the NASDAQ goes down, 10%,
1: then your leveraged inverse ETF will go down 20%. I got something better for that though. If you actually think the market's going to go down, why wouldn't you borrow money, put it into your account, margin it, buy the inverse (laughs) leveraged ETF, and make out like a bandit? Exactly. And of course, my point will be that
2: if you're wrong, then of course, you don't double your money or triple your money on the return. You actually lose more than you actually would have even if you just own the underlying security. The other thing is you'll see a lot of these days are structured products and structured products are simply investments that are structured to provide a return based on certain behavior of underlying benchmarks. Mm-hmm. And you'll see things like market-linked GICs. What's a market-linked GIC? Well, you buy a GIC from the bank, they guarantee your money at maturity, but your return, they don't offer you a fixed return for five years they say, okay, well, your return will be linked to the performance of some underlying index, again, like the TSX 60 index, something like that. But there's always a catch. So for example, the catch might be, well, if the markets don't do anything, you earn zero over the five-year period that you might hold those GICs. And whereas if you owned the index itself, you might actually earn some dividends, but in fact, you would have no return with the GICs. So they're giving you a guarantee that you won't lose any money, but of course you don't make any money either for the period.
1: But I mean, fundamentally, if you're buying a market-linked GIC, you think the market is going up, but you're actually limiting your upside by buying a market-linked GIC. That's right, because the market-linked GICs always
2: come with a cap. And so if the market goes up 30%, your cap may be 15%. And so then you're missing out. And you have to wait until the GIC matures in order to get your money back. And then there's variations on these. There are principal protected notes, which are similar to market link GICs, but they're notes issued by a bank, kind of like just a direct obligation of the bank. And then there's principal at risk notes where you get a certain return profile based on how the underlying index or benchmark behaves that in some cases has no real connection to how it behaves. So for example, there might be a note whereby if the index goes up any amount over zero, you'll get a fixed rate of return maybe 8% for the year, but then those notes could be auto-callable, in which case it'll only happen once and then those notes will be called away and you'll have to buy another investment to replace them. There's auto-callable buffer notes. There's auto-callable coupon barrier notes. And my point is just, there's a whole lot of complex investment structures out there and there may not be anything wrong with them depending on your own particular situation, but they're difficult to understand. They're difficult to explain. And in many cases, you can achieve a very acceptable investment experience by using simple investments that we've always talked about.
1: Stocks, bonds, cash. And so getting back to the nature of this episode is to keep it simple, stupid, not to keep it simple, stupid, (laughs) which ones with the apostrophe, I can't remember, but they're the comma. But the point of it is, what do we do that? If we look at all these like structured products, all that sounds super complex, what you just described. So what are we saying to people to do? We're going to say, keep it simple. In fact, in a quote that
2: traces back to Confucius, life is really simple, but we insist on making it complicated. And I think that happens in most things. People gravitate towards the complex when actually just using a little common sense and keeping it simple can make it easier to reach your goals. And so the number one thing, and this again, thanks to Ben Carlson, number one thing, have a plan that you can stick to through all the markets. We've talked about this before. If you develop a financial plan, come up with an investment strategy, and understand that markets go through cycles, and that over time, or at least two-thirds of the time, markets go up compared to the one-third of the time that markets go down, then by sticking through that plan through all of those ups and downs, you will end up in the place, or you will more than likely, I should say, end up in a place that you hope to. And that's a lot easier than trying to predict what's going to happen tomorrow or next week.
1: Okay, number two then. There's 15 of these points that we're going to go through. Exactly. Number two is don't speculate, invest. I subscribe to this one. A lot of people look at their investments like they're speculative products. I mean, if you want to speculate, that's what a casino's for. We're talking about investing for long periods of time with that plan. Because if you fundamentally believe that a market, like let's say the stock market is down 20 some odd percent right now, if you fundamentally believe that the stock market will get back to its previous all-time high, you're not speculating. You're just riding a downward wave right now. because exactly. you know what's going to get back to where it was. Another one, dollar
2: cost averaging. And that's just another way of saying invest regularly. For the most part, people don't have lump sums of cash all at once to invest. Sometimes they do. You might get an inheritance. You might come into a bonus at work or something like that. But for the most part, people save money gradually over time. And if you invest as you save money gradually over time, then you will be investing at all periods in the market, both when stocks are cheap, when markets have gone down, and when stocks are more expensive, when they've gone up. But by investing through those periods and continuing to invest, you'll be benefiting by having bought more shares at a lower price during those times in the cycle when stocks are down. And so by investing a regular amount or on a periodic basis, you benefit from the ability to buy low, and you benefit from the long time horizon of just letting those investments essentially grow over time.
1: Number four, don't try to time the market. This is one of my favorite conversations, market timing. As we've talked about in the past, almost every investment question has a root cause in market timing. Should I buy this stock now? Should I buy this bond now? Should I buy this auto-callable barrier-protected coupon, whatever it is that you described earlier, now? We've spent a lot of time over the last couple of years talking about the futility of market timing because everything that looks obvious right now isn't obvious. It's only obvious after the fact. Another one, manage your costs. We've talked many times on this podcast about
2: using low cost mutual funds or ETFs because on average, when you look at the performance of active fund management, usually only about a quarter, typically about a quarter of active fund managers actually beat their benchmark. Because in order to beat their benchmark, you have to achieve the benchmark, plus you have to earn enough to cover your costs. And so obviously, with the lower cost investments, the easier it will be for funds to mirror or get very close to achieving the return of the benchmark itself.
1: And the benchmark came from that goal or that plan you mentioned is item number one. This shouldn't be a made up number. Okay, number six is stay away from individual stocks. Listen, trading stocks is a zero-sum game. Some would actually call it a negative-sum game because for every winner, there's a loser. So if you're just investing in what you just described, broad-based ETFs or broad-index mutual funds, you're not trying to be the winner of every trade. You're just saying in general, the market's going to go up over long periods of time. So even now, when the market is down more than 20% and we're in a bear market, This is a great time to be investing. That's right. And listen, we're not saying that people should never
2: buy a stock. As you and I have talked on this podcast many times, there's nothing wrong with it. You might work for a company and you'd like to have more of the company stock, not necessarily overwhelm your portfolio with company stock, but you'd like to have exposure to it because you believe in it and you know what's going on in the company. And if you feel good about that, might as well own the stock.
1: Or you can be speculating. You and I both own a couple of individual stocks in our portfolio. Of course we do. The point of it, though, is that it doesn't make up more than a few percentage points of our overall portfolio. So, if you want to speculate on a couple of stocks, like I go back to what I said earlier on a point about don't speculate, well, actually, I take that back. If you want to speculate on a couple of themes because they interest you, go for it. But it's just got to be a small percentage.
2: What you want is a small enough percentage that if you hit big with it, it's probably still not going to change your life, but it'll feel good and you'll have made some money. Another point here. Have goals in mind with your investments. So when, as we've talked about in the past, the investments themselves come, typically they follow from the financial plan. And so if you've got a reasonable goal of what you need to achieve in terms of wealth accumulation or what have you, then you can always check, how am I doing? You can monitor how you're doing versus those goals. And if the market hasn't behaved itself recently, you can always make adjustments either to your savings or your spending plans but you always want to have the goals in mind and not respond to, not react to just, oh, the market went down, I'm upset, or the
1: market went up, I'm elated. How does it affect your long-term plan? I think where people get into trouble with this one is maybe they weren't around for previous bear markets, Greg. And so they've put money into a market. All they've seen is a negative return for the last few months. And they're extrapolating that out over what's to come for the next many years. That's right. Because that's been their experience to date. And I think When we talked about behavioral finance and behavioral biases, that recency effect is a very powerful one. For sure. Number eight, diversification. I mean, this is a big one. Diversification is your only free lunch, as they say, other than this podcast being called free lunch. So diversification and asset allocation are your only free lunch. So all that really means is that you can reduce your risk by owning many different things in many different asset classes, right? Without affecting your expected return. Well, actually, in some cases, probably affecting your expected return going up. We've shown some lots of data over the years that says if you had been diversified by only owning the Canadian marketplace, your return would have been X and your risk level would have been Y. But if you had diversified outside of Canada, actually, you had higher return and lower risk. Diversification matters. Absolutely.
2: And the next one is we talk about the importance of rebalancing. So with your investment strategy, you might have an asset allocation, a target of, as we've talked about, 50% stocks, 50% bonds, for example.
1: Why? Because the 60-40 portfolio is dead? Well, that's right. Yeah, Yeah. that's right. So the 50-50 is alive, though.
2: (laughs) But when you rebalance the portfolio, it takes advantage of what's happening in the market at the time. So right now, as we're recording this, who knows what the market will have done by the time this podcast airs. But as we're recording this, the S&P 500 is down a little over 20% for the year. And all of the stock markets are down to some extent. And while bond markets are down as well, they're not down as much. And therefore, by rebalancing, you might be reallocating some bond money to some stock money or some cash to stocks because stocks are off 20%. And by doing that, you're buying low. What everybody wants to do is buy low and sell high. So by rebalancing on a regular basis, whether it's quarterly, semi-annually or annually, what you're doing is you're reallocating from the best performing asset class to the worst performing asset class. And that will eventually benefit you without having to make a decision as to whether or not now is the right time because are the markets high or are they low or making any kind of predictions about the future.
1: Number 10, don't pay attention to short-term market movements. Now this is a good one because this could be intraday where the market has opened up down a significant amount or up a significant amount and closed either up a significant amount or down a significant amount. And that's just one trading day. But short-term market movements, what do you mean by that? Probably less than a year, in some cases, maybe less than three years, really. Sure. But short-term, I think going back to that example of if you're a sort of a newer investor and you haven't been through a bear market before, this current market... just feels like it's permanent. But of course, most of the people we've dealt with, we've dealt with them through many different market cycles. And what I find happens is that we all sort of forget about the previous market cycle. Right now, maybe somebody's down, I'll just throw a number out, $100,000. And they say, oh my God, Greg, I'm down $100,000. And then you turn around and say, yeah, but you were down $200,000 in March of 2020. That's right. And then they say, oh yeah, I forgot about that. So don't pay attention to those short-term market movements. And another point, Just building on your point about recency,
2: for a lot of investors who are younger, for example, the pandemic bear market of March of 2020 was their first bear market. And so for them, if they do kind of look back and try to draw parallels or try to make projections of what's happening now based on what happened then, they think that bear markets last a month because that's how long the March 2020 bear market lasted. For some of us who were around for the bear markets of 2000 to 2002 or 2008 to 2009, we think bear markets last anywhere from a year and a half to two years. To a certain extent, there's also that trying to make predictions about what this market is going to look like compared to our previous experiences. And that too can be dangerous because
1: of course, it may not be the same. No market's ever going to be the same. It's just in a different cycle.
2: Different factors affecting things this time than there were back in 08, 09, and likewise 2000.
1: Like the headlines are different. Exactly. But if you looked at sort of the chart, probably looks pretty similar. That's right.
2: Making sure that your risk profile and time horizon is well-matched for all your investments. One of the things about holding investments is for the most part, we recommend, as you've said, investing for the long term. When we buy investments, whether they're well-diversified funds We don't specifically have a date in mind that we want to sell. We think that, okay, well, we're going to hold these types of investments over time. There may be some adjustments or rebalancing along the way. But when it comes to deciding, oh, is now a good time to buy technology stocks, for example, because they're down almost 30%, it's like, well, to what end? Is the goal strictly to make money over what period of time? Do we think they'll go down further? And so looking at stocks today, we don't want to, again, Leave our plan behind and move into the realm of speculating or investing for the short term upside when we've got a long term plan that we're trying to hit with all of our investments and with the right risk profile.
1: Yeah. And number 12, and this goes right back to what you're talking about matching your time horizons. I mean, if you work at a company and they have a group RSP plan or a group matching plan, one of the easiest things you can do is save enough to get 100% of the matching because then you're getting 100% return. I don't want to say guaranteed, but if you put it a hundred dollars into a group plan and they match it a hundred dollars, well, I guarantee you that's a hundred percent return.
2: That's right. And company matching, these are benefits that you're entitled to. And so I know a number of people that have not yet taken advantage. And sometimes it's like, oh, well, it's, it's only a thousand dollars a year or whatever, but a thousand dollars is a thousand dollars. It's a thousand dollars that you're entitled to. You don't have to contribute to your RSP. Somebody else will contribute on your behalf. Take advantage of all of those things. Review your investments on a periodic basis. Obviously, with our clients, we try to do regular reviews three or four times a year, all somewhat depending on each individual circumstances and what their wishes are. But you can certainly drive yourself crazy if you're looking at your investments every day because of the volatility that we see all the time, but particularly now. So what we like to do is look at total balances and performance on a quarterly or semi-annual basis, make sure that things are on track. And if they aren't on track, make some course corrections. And also look at everything all together. A lot of people will say, oh, yeah, but that's my RSP, But what about my non-registered account? It's all your money. They're just in different pockets. So when it comes to reviewing portfolios, look at everything and see how you're doing that way.
1: Isn't that mental accounting? Isn't that what it's called?
2: Mental accounting.
1: Okay. Number 14. I call this the too good to be true principle. If something sounds too good to be true, then it It isn't real. So, if you run across products where it says they guarantee you 8% a year or 10% a year or 12% a year backed by whatever, it's just not real, Greg. There's no such thing as low risk, high return, but there's also no such thing as a guarantee, high risk, high return. You got to be really careful what you're investing your money into. So, getting back to the keep it simple, stupid principle. So, we would recommend that people do things like buy index products that invest in the broad market. You make a good point with the high risk, high return one because we always talk about, well,
2: risk and return are related. And they are, but I like to say expected return and risk are related. And some people think, well, I took a higher risk and therefore I deserve a higher return. And the answer is no, you don't actually deserve it. You expect it because risk and expected return are related, but you're not guaranteed of a higher return. And in fact, by taking that higher risk, you may actually get a worse return and so it's risk and expected return that are related, and it's important to keep that distinction. And lastly, automate as much as possible. This kind of ties in a little bit to what we talked about earlier with dollar cost averaging, but there are lots of ways to automate your savings and investments. Just have your RSP contribution. If you know you've got room to make $12,000 contribution, then if possible, just make a $1,000 a month contribution to the RSP automatically from your bank account. The less you have to get involved, the less chance there will be of falling off that savings plan. Likewise, with tax free savings accounts, we have right now the ability to contribute $6,000 a year, $500 a month. If there's any way to automate that, if you can't afford 500 a month, make it 100 a month.
1: Well, I was just going to make that point because there might be some people listening saying, Greg, I don't have $1,000 a month to put into my RSP, plus another $500 to a tax-free savings account. Exactly. And the number isn't important. It's the
2: fact that you've automated your savings and you've automated your investing. And so you're benefiting from savings, from forced savings, but it's not really forced. It's just unintentional. (laughs) You don't have to make an intention each month to save the money. It's all happening automatically and you're investing on a regular basis.
1: Yeah. You're creating a habit going back to one of our previous episodes. That's right. All right. Well, that was fun. And I have to say, we came up with this episode. I'm going to spill the beans here, Greg. We came up with this episode because we were supposed to interview a fellow about slacking off at work. He was going to talk about this. That particular person bailed on us last minute. So it's kind of funny to me that the person that was going to talk about how to not slack off at work bailed on us on the podcast, but maybe I shouldn't say that out loud. In
2: all fairness, he probably had something come up and needed to
1: reschedule. You're too kind. You're too (laughs) kind. All right. Well, I'm going to leave the show here, Greg. We're going to listen to one last Kiss song. So ready for it? You. I don't know if you recognize it. I certainly do.
2: No? I'm not up on my guess. Sorry. <laughs> I just know Gene Simmons.
1: Gene Simmons married a girl from Saskatoon.
2: Yes, and a playmate of the year.
1: Well, that's just a side note. A B-level actress, right I on. think, is what she'd be known as. But yeah, there's our Saskatchewan connection.
0: That was fun. Right on. All right. See you next time. Next time. Thank you for listening to the Free Lunch Podcast hosted by the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy. To subscribe to this podcast to get more realistic insight on investing or to connect with one of our talented partners, please head on over to markets-work.com. We'll see you next time on the Free Lunch Podcast. The CIBC logo and CIBC Private Wealth Management are registered trademarks of CIBC. If you are currently a CIBC Woodgundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC Private Wealth Management consists of services provided by CIBC and certain of its subsidiaries, including CIBC Woodgundy, a division of CIBC World Markets, Inc. CIBC Private Wealth Management is a registered trademark of CIBC used under license. Woodgundy is a registered trademark of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Colin Andrews and Greg Kreminski are investment advisors with CIBC Woodgundy. This information, including any opinion, is based on various sources believed to be reliable, but its accuracy cannot be guaranteed and its subject to change. CIBC and CIBC World Markets, Inc., their affiliates, directors, officers, and employees may buy, sell, or hold a position in securities of a company mentioned herein, its affiliates, or subsidiaries, and may also perform financial advisory services, investment banking, or other services for, or have lending or other credit relationships with the same. CIBC World Markets, Inc. and its representatives will receive sales commissions and or a spread between bid and ask prices if you purchase, sell, or hold the securities referred to above. CIBC World Markets, Inc. 2022.